step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been And what you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height Hi, this is Avram Rosenzweig And I'd like to welcome my listeners To Hat Radio And I'm going to do something a little unusual here Although I've only done one podcast, so I don't really have a track record to do any usual or unusual. That's the truth. But I'm going to bring in my guest immediately so you can comment on some of the things that I'll say right off uh, the top of the show. My guest today is Karen Goldenberg. Say hello, Karen. Hi. Nicely nice, done. Nice to hear, to be here. And it's nice to have you at Hat Thank Radio. You. you are our second interview. Um, and I am delighted to have you, firstly, because you and I... I can safely say our old friends. We have history. We do. And we're also colleagues. Uh Um, We work together extensively at Via Havta. Yes. So I have a great amount of respect for you, and I love you. Thank you very much. It's a mutual feeling. (laughs) Thank you, Karen. So when I was considering the lineup of interviews that I would do, I wanted to speak with people who were mature, Is that the same as old? (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) We'll get there in a second, though. (laughs) So would most people know you? They would say that you're mature. I imagine so, no. Well, one or the other, they would say. (laughs) You're lucky we're not taking phone calls, by the way. Um, And and somebody who's prepared to talk about who they are. Okay. And, and, And I think you are. I know in our very first interview with Lou Berkowitz, having and losing a soulmate, which was very successful, um, Lou was out there. He really talked about who he is and who he was. His tremendous love for his wife, Renee, who passed away uh, three short years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was delightful because the, the really the goal of the show, Karen, is for people to listen to it and say, hey, you know what? Yes, that's me too. In other words, to hear what you have to say today and really be touched by it and to feel perhaps a little less alone in the world with their feelings or with their thoughts. Good. Well, I hope that uh, I can help achieve those goals. Yes, I I, I think that you can. So let's start off by letting people know who you are and how we know one another. Um, You were born where and when? I was born in Toronto, right here uh, in our fair city uh, in 1944, which means that uh, come January, I'll be turning 75 years old. Mazel tov. Thank you. (laughs) I'm delighted to be here, and I feel uh, very fortunate, and uh, 75 feels pretty good, even with the aches and pains. You you do feel good about being 75? Yeah, I do. I feel good that I've reached that age. Uh, I have to say that I am the only person in my immediate family that will hit 75. Yeah. Both of my parents died at the age of 74. My two wonderful sisters, one at 44 and one at 64. So I've been very keen to get to the end of this year and um, in good health. And I look forward to many more years, I hope. But well, what is 74 like? What happens inside your head? Well, for me, as I said, I was very conscious of the fact that none of my immediate family hit the age of 75. And... Uh, 
I often commented, especially to my husband, that I want to get through this year and uh, get to 75, and I'll feel relieved. Now, it's interesting to me because many people find uh, that at the age when one of their parents passed away, yes. um, they're very conscious of the clock. And uh, I didn't really relate to that very much, but it did hit me when I turned 74. So your parents were how old when they passed? They were 74, both of them. My father was 61 when he died, yeah, and I'm yeah. now 58. So yeah. I'm quite conscious of that. Yeah. It says somewhere in the Torah where within five years of your parents' demise, you start to be much more conscious yeah. of uh, your age and your ultimate demise, right? Yeah. But my question about how do you feel about being 75 is you're not 15 years old. <laughs> Indeed, I'm not. No, <laughs> and you're not 30 and you're not 50. You're not yeah. 60. You're 75. Now, when we were growing up, people who were 75... They were old. They were old. We saw them as old. And are I you old or are you young? I don't feel old. I don't feel young. But I do feel at a stage of my life where I'm entering into a new territory. Yes. And uh, I feel blessed to be 75. We're hitting 75. And, um, but I'm very aware of my age and stage in life as it relates to my children, my grandchildren, my career, um, many of the things that I have uh, enjoyed and experienced. I, this is a new phase. I think it, it comes when you're 70. It didn't hit me at 70, but I'm starting to feel it at 75. Are you wise? I think I'm reasonably wise. And most people would think I'm wise, but it's not something I'm frequently called. <laughs> well, how do you define wise? Um, someone who has um, had experience from which they have learned a great deal and brings that learning to the fore in positive way. I would think that that would be a, an impromptu definition of, of wisdom. So, so, so when you look at the world right now and you, you think about what's going on around you, your perceptions are different than they were 10 years ago? Well, very much Or so. your awareness? My awareness is different and my perceptions are different. And I, I think that the last 10 years have seen some very troublesome things and the times have not been getting better for for the world at large, but yes. uh, more and more challenging. So that's not so much a product of my age, but it is a product of my experiences that I could say that I think this is one of the most challenging times in my life, in my lifetime, yes. uh, that we are living in today. Yeah. Your parents were both accountants? Well, yeah, m one uh, a qualified accountant and the other one uh, not the same credentials, but in many ways even more qualified. <laughs> you always have spoken about them when you and I discussed family uh, in such very passionately, very compassionately. Um, they seem like loving, caring, soft, beautiful people. Yeah, my, we, I, I was uh, really, really fortunate to have wonderful, wonderful parents. Yes. Uh, they were both born in Toronto. Um, uh, their parents came in the early 1910, 1911. My grandparents arrived, so I from really- From where? where did they uh, from Russia, from mm -hmm. Russia, uh, from the Pale. They came early. Uh, my mother's family came to Winnipeg and then moved to Toronto. Uh, my father's family, I think originally, many of them went to New York. Uh, my grandfather, I know very little about him, but I think he came to Toronto directly. 
and uh, married here. They all married here. Um, my, my parents were very special people. They, uh, I often think about my mother's table yes. and the fact that there was always room for people and people always came, whether it was for tea after dinner <laughs> where there could be six or eight or nine or ten people who would drop in and uh, there was always that extra pot of hot water <laughs> to add to the teapot. Yes. Or Shabbat dinner where we and our friends and our kids' friends were always welcome. That was the kind of home that I grew up in, and uh, it was very special. And uh, all of my children, and my my husband, and my my siblings, and their families were very much loved to sit at our table. What was your mother's name? My mother's name was Mary. Her actual name was Mir Miri. Miri. But they, I don't know why they called her Mary. Miri is so much prettier. Yes. <laughs> but uh, she was Mary, and my father's name was David. David Wolf. Did they know who you were? Did they, that generation often sort of looked beyond or above that at the bigger picture? Did they have I a sense of I who little Karen was? I think they did. I think I was a notable child, <laughs> not an easy one. And uh, my parents were around to see uh, and to support some of my accomplishments and uh, to support me through some of the various good times and hard times. So I had a sense that they knew who I was. I was a and probably continue to be a pretty forceful <laughs> personality. So you were an obstreperous child as I you were an obstreperous adult. Yeah, obstreperous. How so? How so? Obstreperous is a word that has been used uh, not infrequently. <laughs> um, as a child, I was very demanding. Um, I was somewhat sickly and very small. And um, my parents found me very difficult, especially since there were two other... Um, my mother had two sisters who each had girls uh, and we were about seven weeks apart. I was the youngest and the others seemed to be dreamboat children compared <laughs> to me who cried, who didn't eat, who seemed to be hyperactive, who crawled out of her crib at 11 months, <laughs> who needed to be in a harness because I would run on the street. And I think that probably defines my energy today uh, over, over <laughs> my lifetime. Uh, I, I'm lucky that I did manage to direct it, but I suspect that I um, that I had some uh, ADHD uh, as a kid uh, and had a lot of trouble. Uh, no zitzflesh, if you know that word. And um, there was no there was no um, diagnoses laid on kids, at least not in my family. So the word was chayla is a handful. <laughs> and I, I think that people would think that. So right from the earliest uh, stage when I was moving about and stuff, I think that there was recognition that I wasn't an easy child yes. to take care of or to manage. And in Yiddish I we call you Vilda Chaya, my, which is a wild father, Chaya, yeah, right? My Jewish name is Chaya, and my father called me Vilda Chaya. Yeah, yeah. So your, your dad, he, he volunteered a lot, did he not? My dad was the quintessential volunteer. Mm -hmm. The sweet thing about my dad is his passion to help people one at a time and to be quite anonymous in his giving. He wasn't uh, a man that uh, looked for the limelight, but his he was truly uh, a chassid. He, he, he was so kind, and in fact, very often, uh, I could sense a point of contention in the house because my father would give away the store uh, if he felt someone needed it, and it wasn't only his store to give away. Yes. But uh, he was very much driven by helping others, whether they were newcomers to the country, th whether they were um, 
family members who had financial or personal uh, t troubles, challenges. An accountant, especially the kind of accountant my dad was, who had, uh, he had a practice that was mostly small business individuals, and they became friends. And I had a sense that that kind of an accountant with the kind of personality my father had was really a bit of a counselor. They came to him to discuss their happy times, more likely their sad times. Yeah. He celebrated with their families on their sumpas and their losses. And so he had a very large circle of uh, people who admired and loved him and people who he helped. So he was a gentle man. Very gentle, yeah. He Do was a gentle man. He was a fun-loving man. Yeah. He was the fun one. Uh, my mom was the uh, disciplinarian and always the, the one that worried my father would. Uh, he just, uh, his smile comes to my mind right now as we're talking about him because he had a joie. He had a joie. So we were, we were very lucky. He was about community. And um, he was very active for many, many years with Toronto Jewish Free Loan. Oh, okay. He was the president a couple of times. When there was no executive director, he'd go in every day and do whatever needed to be done. Toronto Free Loan, just tell us about that. Now, this is a wonderful charity that's really about giving people a hand up. It's a loan. It's not charity. And people are expected to pay it back in a fashion that is organized and arranged, and the repayment rate is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So th it's a gift, when you give it to them, it's a gift that keeps giving. Mm -hmm. And very often it enables people to move on in their lives, whether it's dental work or education, business loan, household loan, new beds for the kids. Um, it's a beautiful little charity, and it's part of the, the free loan uh, network is part of a network that goes on throughout the United States, and I don't know if it's in other how many other places in Canada, but it's noble, and people sit once a week, and they meet with people, and they hear their stories, and they make a decision. It is very noble, isn't yeah. it? That's it's a good very word. noble. And my dad, um, because people are asked for guarantors, if you're a newcomer, you don't have people to guarantee you. The yes. people you know don't necessarily have resources, and you don't very many. So it was hard for them to get loans. And my father, and I suspect other board members, but more, more my dad, would often act as a guarantor. And it enraged my mom because she said, what if, what if we're on the hook for this? But he couldn't, he couldn't turn people away. Now, I must say that uh, when my dad uh, passed away, we created a fund. It was my mom's idea to honor my father's memory, and the fund acts as a guarantor. Oh, really? People who haven't, who haven't got a guarantor. That's terrific. And they, the board then, as it became more sophisticated, uh, developed a rule that, that directors couldn't be guarantors. But I'm very proud when I get a report each year as to what the fund has done, and uh, I think that was very wise of my mother and very thoughtful. Do you, do you uh, feel uh, like an orphan at all at 75? I asked that. I asked that because I do. I know you and I have spoken about that. Yeah. I don't think about myself as an orphan, but I am certainly very aware that all of my immediate family are gone, yeah. and I'm particularly moved at times when friends who have siblings, especially sisters, are getting together and sharing stories, and I think. Wow, where are my sisters? They died so young. So you had two sisters. I had two wonderful, wonderful sisters. What were their names? My uh, 
next in line sister, his name was Shirley, mm -hmm. Shirley Trim, and my baby sister was Aviva, and uh, she she became Aviva Goodbaum. So Aviva died at the age of 44. She was the first in our family. Yes, I'm sorry. And she had a chronic uh, immune disorder. And in many ways, it was a gift for her to live as long as she did. She was cared for at sick kids until she was 40 because people with her condition, dyscamoglobulinemia, didn't live past childhood. So she it was a gift to have her. And in the end, her illness and a bad blood transfusion did her in. What was she like? Uh, she was this wonderful, creative, impish, very beautiful young woman with a creative soul and a big neshama. Um, everyone loved Aviva. Everyone loved Do you Aviva. remember any particular experiences you had together? Oh, well, Aviva, when, when we were growing up, I was 10 when she was born, so I thought I was her mother. Mm -hmm. And she lived in a, her bedroom was a tandem, just you had to go through my bedroom to get to her bedroom. And I heard her breathe at night, and I knew I was there before my parents could get there, and uh, she was my sweet, loving toy, and uh, we shared many, many times together, and uh, she called me Kiraney, and she came to me first often when she was troubled, but uh, she was a very special young woman, and uh, very, very beloved, and very missed. And your other sister? My sister Shirley was... Uh, she lived until she was 64 years old, and she had a tremendous spirit. And much like my dad, she was very kind and very thoughtful and put others before herself. And uh, she was lively, and uh, she was a real estate agent in the end, uh, uh, her, uh, her career, and uh, just had, a, like my dad, a tremendous joie and um, loved helping people and loved being there. So we were very close, all of us, uh, as the elder sister and the bossy sister, the bossy, <laughs> the one. bossy one in the family. Yes, I'm sure. People turned to me, and I, um, I loved them. And even my parents, I was often a mediator, even as a child when there was tension. Um, well, maybe by the time I was 15, not before <laughs> I was <laughs> the source of tension yeah. until then, I suspect. But... Uh, yeah, we all had our roles to play. One of my lo lovely stories is the way when there was a problem, my father would call a, a, a family meeting and we would sit at that kitchen table um, and he would have a little gavel and he would call the meeting to order and we had rules about how we conducted ourselves. Like what, what were the rules? Hmm? What were the rules? Oh, you know, everybody was allowed to speak and you couldn't cut people off. And everyone had a right to their opinion. Okay. And there was no wrong answers per se. And uh, we needed to resolve the issue at hand and uh, acknowledge it. And those, we always look forward to those, even though often they were called because there was some problem that persisted. But it was, it was a really a democratic household in that way. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. It's, it's something I can visualize even today. So your parents, it seems that they allowed you to express yourself? Yeah, to say what so. was on your mind. Yeah, they did, especially if I was defending myself yeah. <laughs> for some uh, something I did or someone else did. Um, uh, we had an opportunity to speak about it, and at that uh, meeting, we were civilized. You weren't yelling, there you weren't uh, blaming, you weren't out of control. You really were being thoughtful. It was a good. It was a good process. Well, was religion a part of your family up upbringing? 
Um, my father was quite a religious man. He grew up in a an orthodox home where my grandfather really was extremely from. And uh, when we think about him, he had two things that he valued. One was godliness and the other was cleanliness and he barely worked. And in many ways he did not support his family and he wasn't a good dad. Um, but he was extremely, extremely religious. And we didn't have any pictures of him because they felt that that was creating an idol of yourself. Mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. we didn't have this. My father grew up in that environment. It was not a loving home. Um, but he continued to love his Jewishness, to love his shul, to love the ritual. Uh, we were not uh, overly religious, but we belonged first to Eitz Chaim and then to Sherishamayim. I always belonged to an Orthodox shul. But the interesting thing was my mother really was an atheist. She grew up in a family of communists, although my bubby, her mother, I think was a very soulful person in her own way religious, but there was not a lot of ritual or observance um, in, in my grandmother's house where my mother grew up. My mother was the only one really to marry a man who had very strong uh, attachments to his Jewish ritual and practice and shul. And, uh, Would your mother speak against God? No, but my mother um, didn't, as I said, didn't have a strong upbringing, but had a sister who had a rheumatic heart and was very, very sick. Okay. I've told you this story. Mm -hmm. And her sister um, became quite an invalid. She had two little children, about seven and three. And um, my m she became sicker and sicker. And my mother tried to bargain with God. And she said, please save my sister and I will be a from Jew. Which is interesting because she didn't believe in God. No, but that, well, that's my mother's <laughs> history. When in trouble, hedge your bets, you know? <laughs> you anyway, that yeah, was a very idea. sincere feeling of hers. And, she barg and her mother died on Yom Kippur. Her sister died on Yom Kippur. Yeah. And that sort of was the nail in the coffin for my mom. So my mom was respectful of my dad and his practices and observances, but she herself did not go to shul. She kept kosher. Uh, I went to day school, as did my youngest sister. So we observed holidays, um, but she herself could not relate to it. As she got older, it changed a little bit, especially when she was sick. Mm -hmm. Like I said, people hedged their bets. Mm -hmm. But I think she was proud to be Jewish. I think she enjoyed all the cultural aspects and the uh, family identity. She just maybe was more honest than many who wasn't sure about God. I want to move forward to your uh, later years when you when you got married. But before I do, I'm curious about something you said before, which is that your father came from a home which was not kind. How does a kind person end up that way not having parents who were able to be role models about mm. goodness mm -hmm. you know about uh, opening one's heart How yeah, does, is that peculiar to you that, that's a wonderful question i think that although um my grandmother who was uh, four foot nothing practically she was a little was one a, she, she was she delivered coal and every day she came home black from the top of her head to the tip of her toes always working my grandfather was never around and my father grew up in the homes of friends and i think he mm. 
cherished the kindness and the warmth and the love that he saw in those homes. And uh, these were um, friends of my grandmother, but there was, in each instance, someone my dad's age who became like a brother to my dad. My dad was an only child. So I've often wondered um, if it was really that goodness that helped him that penetrated his soul because it wasn't something he saw at home. My grandmother was a good person, but she was tough. She, she was exhausted. Um, but he did feel the love and kindness of others, and I guess it, in his own way he wanted to give back. I, is it a true statement that if your parents um, at their very core are fine, loving, good, decent, compassionate people, and that plays out that the child will necessarily be that way? I don't think it's a rule of thumb. It it's not a rule of thumb? Not, I doubt it. I think they're... I think it probably happens more often than not that we're uh, strongly influenced and shaped by our family. But we all know stories of siblings that grow up in the same house and some become one way and others another. So it's not the only factor, uh, certainly. Um, and uh, my father always cherished family. My mother came from a large family. And, uh, and his friends were paramount in his life. So I think that's where he had an ex a sense that he can give back and that not always people have the same kind of rich friends that can support them. So your point that the influence on people does not only come from their household, it comes from their friends, it comes from their family, <laughs> I'm sorry, it comes from their school. Um, I have a friend by the name of Erwin Elman, mm -hmm. and Erwin is a fine human being. He was the head of a, of a organization here in Toronto, which essentially was responsible legally um, for children in foster care. Mm. And I asked Erwin once, I said, Erwin, you know, I see so many kids who were brought up near the street because via Hafta, our organization work with people who are homeless and yet they're able to overcome such great adversity. How is that? And he responded, he says, you know, Avram, he goes, when I was uh, uh, little, it was around seven or eight years old, he said, I also grew up in a tough family. And um, I remember going to school and uh, the teacher uh, said in front of the entire class, now, children, Irwin is a fine writer and he's an excellent sports writer. And of course, Irwin hearing this in front of all of his friends was so proud, likely a little bit shy. And he wrote a piece which she subsequently read to the class. And Erwin said that got him through in some ways, that got him through life. That praise. That praise. Yeah. That moment when someone comes up to you and recognizes for a moment who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think those kinds of experiences uh, can make a huge difference. And, uh, I, I think the, when I look at my dad, and I, first of all, two things astounded me. He was a phenomenally dedicated son to his father. And we always looked and said, like, it's, it was amazing to me how devoted he was, how kind, how often he visited, how he looked after him. And to this man who was so mean, so yeah. mean and yeah. so negligent of him. Um, and uh, so that was sort of a surprising thing. Uh, but, and I've lost my train of thought. No, it's, it's, so it's a fascinating so point you, you make. Can't, you can't always uh, assume that we're the absolute product of what bef went before us. It's a, yeah. 
it's a, a, a you know a mixed bag of things and why some of us integrate some things and some others I don't know um, and for some people it takes a while to find themselves or to find the good side of themselves but I believe there's a good side to everyone it's also a very interesting point that you're making because there is uh, in the Ten Commandments it says one should honor their mother and the father. father. Now look, if you have parents like you had, okay, was it hard to honor your parents? No. no. But if your parents were yelling at you all the time or and they were they putting were, you if down. If they were mean or if they were if ne they negligent were or they were, yeah, then you would want, you know, for people who come from those kinds of households, that would be enormously difficult. That's really enormous. honoring your parents. Yeah. And yeah. especially and later on when your parents get sick. And very often, again, they become obstreperous. My mother was very difficult in the last year, you remember. I do. But and that, it was awful. Uh, I, now, it's interesting because when I look at the kind of behavior that you you described about your mother, I think that wasn't your mother. Right. That was right. That was dementia, it sounded like, and it took hold of your mom and it changed <laughs> who she was in those expressions. Not fundamentally she was who she was, but I, I believe that when that happens, that's not what you want to remember. That's not the essence. Yes. And you had a, a loving and lovely mother, and I met her. I had the privilege of meeting her. But you spoke about her so often, and she was so important to you and your siblings, your sisters. I mean, she was a force. Well, she was also a hoot. We had yeah, a good time she together. Fun, yeah. She was a funny woman. She used to come down here in my apartment and watch the hockey game with my son and my friend Joan. And uh, she was an avid, avid hockey fan See. or sports fan. See. And she'd be yelling, get it out of your zone. Get it out of your zone. And we'd be sitting <laughs> so there cute, laughing. because I wouldn't think about a religious woman. I know. Having, she was a Rebbitson. I know. That's I just know. lovely. Yeah. So you got married. Uh, you, you've been married twice. Your first marriage, you were how old? I was almost 21. So you were young. I was young. Yeah. In those years, was that young? Well, many, many of my friends got married younger, um, but that was acceptable. That yeah, was yeah. acceptable. You wanted to get married? Oh, yeah. I, I needed to get married. At that time, I needed to get married because it was the only way I could get out of my parents' home. It yeah. wasn't acceptable. And, uh, you know, and again, you didn't have sex with outside of marriage. Right. So in order to be liberated... One fell in love early. I often think about it as being a forced ripe, and uh, you married, and then you could move out of your the home and you know, and enjoy the that freedom. Was it nice for you when you got married? Yeah, it was pretty nice. Um, it wasn't without challenges. Uh, but both of us were in school. My husband was in medical school in his last year, and I was in my second year uh, of rehabilitation as a physical and occupational therapist. It was sort of fun because we were both in the medical field. I lived in the intern's residence. Uh, I loved being surrounded by all of that. Uh, I think had I been born in another generation, I would have aspired to be a doctor, not to marry a doctor. Right. But uh, in my family, I was one of the first women to actually go to university. People became teachers. That was sort of a course you took, or they became accountants. <laughs> you know, those were correspondence courses. So. Um, yeah, I had fun, but there were signs that my husband, who was really a brilliant, very handsome man, um, had some problems. Uh, they, I think they started to manifest themselves uh, early on, and uh, like many uh, young women who 
were optimistic and thought life was a big bowl of cherries. Yeah. I felt we we're going to grow out of that stuff and he's going to be fine and we're going to live happily ever after. And, and that sadly was not the case. Well, w w you had children early on in the marriage? Um, I we had children. It was about four and a half years after being married, which people thought there was something wrong with me, right? Yeah, yeah. But I had a career, and my husband very much. Uh, we moved from Toronto to Montreal. He uh, trained in surgery. He really was a brilliant man and a, a brilliant physician. Um, he he became. He had a lot of anxiety. There was problems, but we. I wanted to wait till I graduated and felt settled, and then so we had a child. I was 25 when my first child was born. I was 26 when my second child was born. They're they're just 15 months apart. Um, so one day you come home, and what happened? Well, um, he became increasingly um, anxious and depressed. Uh, signs of uh, quite serious mental illness. When I think about it, I. Um, at at one point, uh, after much struggle, um, he uh, the, the chief of surgery at the Royal Vic, which is where he was training, suggested that he do a master's uh, just to buy some time and start to get settled in himself. To relax a little bit. Yeah. And so he did two years of uh, research and brilliantly. And then it was his time to come back um, as the chief resident, and he was in no shape to do that. And so uh, at that time, we had two little children. As I said, they were just 15 months apart. And uh, he was in grave trouble in terms of uh, just not being able to cope with life. And you knew this? Oh, yeah. By that time, we, we were getting a lot of therapy. And psycho he was in psychoanalysis, and I was seeing somebody. But it was uh, pretty, pretty tragic and pretty sad. Um, so he had was taken out of the of the uh, treatment pro of the tr of the training program at the Vic and uh, was really not functioning at all and we moved back to Toronto um, I rented a little house on Viewmount and I realized as he was getting sicker even though I sort of hoped that one day there would be a miracle and he would be fine that I needed to be able to support my own fam my own family yes. and I be it really shaped my life and I became ferociously independent, um, which wasn't that hard because I had wonderful, loving parents who I knew would be there should I absolutely need them. <laughs> but I was not going to ever be dependent on anyone else to support my kids. Um, ultimately, uh, my husband uh, did commit suicide. Yeah. He overdosed. Uh, as a physician, he had lots of access to medication. He he was desperately sad, and uh, I understood that sadness, and I respected his choice, which is an interesting thing because um, taking your life is is tragic and it's sinful. Uh, he had two little children that he could have enjoyed, yes. but he couldn't he couldn't bear the his future. Uh, as he saw it, so that um, that was a devastating time in our lives. M my kids were very, very little. They were one and a half and two and a half. So, they so were not cognizant of what was going no, on. No, no. Although he was uh, spent a lot of time at his mom's and he wasn't around. Um, no, th they didn't know differently, you know. But uh, 
they were delicious children, and he loved them dearly. Mm-hmm. And uh, do and you think about him now? Oh yes, very much so. In fact, just this weekend, I had uh, dinner with his sister, uh, who I consider my sister. I met her when she was seven years old. She was the nice. same age as Aviva, and so they're my mishpocha, and uh, we talk about him. And uh, but there's no real recollection. There's memory through photographs and through stories that my children don't have any. And you can see his face. In oh, your very much. And don't forget, he died. He was 30, 32 years old. So uh, it was a young man's face. But I, he's very much a part of my, my life, of my soul. I loved him deeply. Um, was he I your soulmate? No, I don't think so. I don't think he was. He wasn't that open. But um, I thought he was my future. And I thought we would do things we had both had a love of medicine, um, but we were kids. So, um, what was the aftermath like for you? Did you feel victimized? Did you hold your head high? I didn't feel victimized, um, but I did. My mother-in-law blamed me. Um, she became, uh, morbidly, uh, her grief was morbid and never left. She lit a candle for him for the rest of her life. She, um, she thought if only I had done more, if only I could have been more, if only, if only, if only. It was pretty ugly. Um, but I, I was at some level obsessed with making a life for my kids and, uh, and very grateful for uh, my parents and my sisters who were always there for me and were wonderful, always loving my kids and taking them out. They had lots of attention. Um, and I was blessed to uh, have a housekeeper uh, when I knew I had to go back to work about three months after I moved back to Toronto um, uh, I hired a housekeeper somebody told me somebody from church you know knew this older woman came walking by my house right. with a friend and she looked like she was going to church she was dressed so and I s- had a sense and we'd had an appointment for the next day and I called out to her she was just trying to make sure she knew the directions so that she wouldn't be late. Right. I came and I heard her on the spot. What was her name? She lived with us for 27 years. Yeah, phenomenal stories her within na- that, I'm uh, sure. Her name was Pastoria Samuels. We brought her family over. Uh, from where? Oh, from Jamaica. Yeah. From St. Anne's. And she was a gift to me and uh, to my family. She loved my children passionately and looked after us. <laughs> we were like kings and queens. And that really did enable me to uh, pursue my career and uh, not to worry about who was home with my kids and whether they would be properly bathed and fed, etc. So, so was she a bit like a sister? Was she no, a bit she, like No, she was older than my mother. Was she like a mother? Was she like no, a grandmother? She, what well, was the relationship? Uh, it was just she was family. I didn't really, uh, she was family. She came from a background where she felt very much her role almost as, as a servant, which I couldn't tolerate. And it was hard for her to sit with us for dinner or when I hired, they told me I needed someone to clean the house, the heavy housework, mm-hmm. because her job was, well, she hid in her room that I didn't think she was clean enough. Well, that was the last time I ever had anyone else clean. But we d- we oh, you 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 hired you brought someone else into yeah clean because people told me I was supposed to do that well that happened once she hid in her room she was humiliated that I didn't think she could look after uh, us I, see. Okay. I thought it wasn't I was told you're supposed to have a you're supposed to have B but um, she she was a gift and uh, she was a a religious woman and 
she she was extraordinary and she was a vital part of our family and my kids loved her they loved her dearly and she accepted sydney when he and i got married and uh just it was just made life so much easier it was it was a blessing. Yeah. Well, what was the Jamaican Jewish thing like? <laughs> was there anything within that? Oh no, she was she was very respectful, although uh, and uh, although uh, she went to church once a week, and when her husband came, he became some sort of a pastor, and they were very involved in their church with choir and stuff like that. But um, there was never an issue of differences of religious backgrounds at all, and. Uh, I loved it. She called my mother Booby. Booby. And she was older than my mother by a couple of years. And did you she learn called any her Booby Mary. Did yeah. you learn any Jamaican sayings? Because they have uh, wonderful no. sayings. Oh, they have wonderful sayings. But my favorite thing was when Daniel, uh, my youngest, was a little boy. He would say, I told she not to do that. I told she. <laughs> right, and he had right, a lot of expressions right. from her. <laughs> and uh, we all would, would tease in, in great fun. So she, she passed away. You went to the funeral. You were bawling your eyes out. Yeah. What happened at the funeral? Yeah, I, w this was a, a, a quite a moment. Uh, we went to the funeral. Um, we were the only white people at the funeral at the church, uh, my two eldest kids and myself. And we were weeping. I mean, this woman was so special. And everyone else was coming to comfort us, her sons, her friends, her churchmates, everyone coming to comfort us. They all knew who we were. But they were, for them, this was praise the Lord, she's coming home. Yes. And it was a song. And it was a celebration of her life. And we are sitting there, these little Jewish people <laughs> weeping. <laughs> Uh, and the kindness and the richness of celebrating her life was something we will all remember forever. And at the cemetery, uh, uh, we, uh, a, I, they buried people one on top of the other, which was new to me. And following that, there was a big party, like a shiva or a wake. And it was, again, music and singing and celebration of her life. And praise the Lord, she's coming home. Did that work for you, the parting angle of the, yeah, yeah. what we would oh, call yes, the it was shiva? Because yeah, we're it, not parting at shiva. We don't party. We don't party, but there's something about shiva sometimes that I yes. think gets a little out of hand. And although it's not a party, it's um, it, it can... Get boisterous. Yes, it can get boisterous. And um, it isn't exactly what one would think should happen. I have a, a cute story to tell you that a couple of my friends... Um, when one of my parents died, I don't remember which one, um, a good friend of mine, Wendy Campbell, who was one of the founders of Kota with me, um, she would come to the Shiva for all of my Shivas, sadly, my sisters and my parents. And, and she just thought it was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. And when her mother died, she uh, said she was going to have a shake which was a combination of a Shiva and a wake. Oh, nice. And she invited everybody to come over the weekend from Friday to Sunday night to bring food and memories of her mom. And she had pictures all around. And I thought that was a gorgeous adaptation. Yes, very much. Shake. <laughs> so How did it play out, the shake? It was a beautiful weekend. It was just beautiful. It was now, what was Shiva about it? What was Wake about it? Well, I think Shiva was the people brought food that they were very much there to honor her, her mom. She recognized, because we had talked about it, that what was nice about Shiva was that you greeted people and y they got to share your loss. And when you saw them next on the street, it wasn't raw. Yes. Uh, which is what Shiva is about, as I understand it, one of the things that Shiva is about. 
And so that was very much how she experienced it and people brought food and memories and photos were shared and stories were told and she found it very healing. And I, I've often thought that Shiva, as sometimes it becomes enormously boisterous and uh, challenging, is a healing time. And you you know the joke about Shiva? <laughs> that the man, the man is dying and he calls over his son and he goes, Johnny, come over here. What is it, Daddy? I'm hungry. I need something to eat. <laughs> Go ask Mommy. Go ask Mommy. Okay. He goes, ask Mommy. comes back. He goes, Daddy, I'm sorry. Mommy says the food's for the Shiva. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> a terrible joke. So we, but it's interesting because food is so much part of the Shiva. And people bring in food. They so do. My, one of my friends do. arrived uh, at the Shiva, and they came with a gorgeous tray of uh, open-faced sandwiches from Jensen's or someplace at Bluer. And <laughs> to my, my dad's <laughs> apartment and it was shrimp and it was ham <laughs> and it was deviled eggs with hoo-ha, whatever. And he walked in with his and we walked right to the balcony and we said, we'll eat it later at yeah, our house. Yeah. But uh, they had no, no sense of that kosher. But so. talking about Shiva food, here's a good segue. Uh, you and I um, worked in the Jewish community for many years. You worked outside of it as well in a nonprofit environment. Uh, we, w we both worked for Via Hafta. You became the in interim uh, executive director. And uh, we used to get a lot of Shiva food that was delivered to us, we which did. we could get out on the street, which I always thought was a really wonderful thing. Absolutely. You, it's because it's like it's, it's taking one of these moments in life, the end of life, and uh, using the resources from that very, very special time, getting out on the street to try to make other people's lives better who are suffering terribly, right? right? Interesting almost juxtaposition. But let's take that forward a little bit. Let's talk about your career. You decided early on that you basically wanted to be in a caregiving industry, right? Yeah, I was always attracted to, as I said, I had I been born later, I probably would have tried to be get into medical school. You would have been a doctor, huh? I would have liked that, yeah. Um, but I went in to be a therapist, um, and I loved it from the minute I got there. Were you smart? Um, I, I academically I was an underachiever, but I um, it was a force. So um, every time I started a new program, I needed to prove that I could be up at the top. I didn't ever need to be the best, and so I would go to university and I would stop and start in the top ten. And after that, I didn't care where I stood. Every year it was a ten positions right. lower and lower. <laughs> but I knew that I could get there if I needed as to. As long as you and knew. And that it. was high school as well. But I was very social. Um, I was not a particularly diligent student. I did enough to get by. But I took, when I was in university, I took it very seriously. Like, if I missed something, maybe I wouldn't know what to do as a physiotherapist with somebody's shoulder because I didn't know my anatomy. So it was a different kind of learning. And it often surprises me the things that I still remember. <laughs> I can't remember a lot of other things. Like what? Like what? Oh, certain anat anatomical things. Give me an example. <laughs> uh, well, one of them was a mnemonic for the bones of the wrist, which was TTC has such... Uh, small ticket to prices, and uh, each of those letters stood for a bone in your head. Now, that's the stupidest thing to remember, right. but I, I remember a lot of anatomy. I remember a lot of physiology. I was particularly interested in the courses we did in psychiatry, uh, and, ha um, and uh, m much of my career was focused on mental health and, and addiction services, although uh, the first my first really meaningful uh, work was... Uh, a broader sense of rehabilitation, of helping people adjust in their homes. 
No, well, why were you attracted to, if you will, mental illness? Well, I think that A, I had seen my husband's experiences. I was very uh, tuned in emotionally. I think that was just who I was, quite psychologically oriented and uh, very aware of how um, one's mental health can affect their physical health, their uh, living experiences, their relationships. Um, but watching my, my late husband suffer uh, and uh, seeing the despair and the, the, the shame, the shanda of mental illness really struck me. And so I was, I don't know that it was this conscious an act, but I was very keen to see mental health services developed in, in Canada. And uh, I think that was really my, uh, one of my special contributions uh, is the development of mental health services at COTA, at Community Occupational Therapy. Does mental health scare you at all? Like when you're with somebody who has severe mental health issues, do you get at all sort of unnerved or destabilized yourself? Because I do. I can get that way. I, not very often. It might be that I'm not very often anymore subjected to those kinds of things. Um, I have uh, worked with very um, disabled mentally challenged people in various work experiences. Um, but I've always um, had a sense of hopefulness about it, and I've always believed that everyone has the right to be treated with dignity and uh, to be given an opportunity. That's been a very prevalent uh, value of mine and part of who I am. So uh, when I think about things that frighten me, um, certainly mental illness is, is something tragic and for some people, when it's intractable, it's it's more than tragic. Um, but I've also um, worked with people with ALS and people with multiple sclerosis and people with blindness. So um, there are different sad losses that people experience, and how they deal with it um, is something that we should all support and treat them with dignity and with opportunity. And I think that each and every one of us can make a difference. So maybe that comes back to my dad and the way he believed that you help people one at a time. Do you think you have mental illness? No, I don't. No, I don't feel that I have uh, not what I would call mental illness. I think I, I have moments. <laughs> I, I think I, I can be hyper at times, yeah, yeah. but I don't think it's mental illness, no. You think and I have mental illness? No, um, I don't think you have mental illness, but I do think that there are times that you um, appear to have some depression. Yes, I do. And I know that about you. Yes, I do. But I use the word mental illness as sort of a, there, there's a degree. I think we all have some aspects, uh, whether it's more sadness that can manifest itself in and depression, it's how one functions through it. So I don't think that anybody's pure, um, and it's about degree. So how people adapt and uh, work through their challenges is important, and how society and people that you know support you through that is are critical. Are you able to communicate with someone who is going through, let's say, a schizophrenic moment. There was one of our students at the Via Hafta Street Academy, which is a school for the homeless or near homeless, and he told me that he had uh, many different personalities. 
And I asked him if I could speak to him about it. And he said, yes. He told me some crazy things, Karen. One of which was that he was on uh, regularly when he's on a bus and he one of his personalities is coming out, which is very loud and aggressive. Literally, people will come over to him. He's had this experience more than once and punch him in the head. Punch him in the head. Yeah, people might be, be afraid of him. Right. They might be afraid mm -hmm. of him. Can you communicate with people? Like, can you calm people? Do you have that within you? Well, again, I think there are some levels of disturbance that people can reach, which perhaps you can't reach them. But um, I'm not intrinsically frightened by manifestations of mental illness. You're not. You're not frightened. I'm by not that. frightened by it. But when it's over-the-top kind of delusional, psychotic behavior. Um, it can be pretty frightening, and uh, I haven't seen that much of it, but um, when I have, I've not been alone to deal with it, so I've not really been. I'm not sure I've ever seen you really scared. Do you get scared? Um, yeah, I don't think about being scared. I think I've had scary moments in my life. Yeah. And I've had uh, deep sadness, um, and uh, but I'm not intrinsically an anxious or a depressed person. I tend to be quite positive. I often say I was fortunate enough to be born with happy genes. Yeah, you really and do I have happy genes. I have happy genes, and I I look at my life and I feel that I've been blessed, although I've had losses. Um, but you've never had depression when you've stayed in bed. Not really, no. First of all, I've always had a, 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 a great sense of responsibility for what I need to accomplish. Yeah. accomplish. And so I've never, I don't even, I want to say I've never allowed myself to do that, but I've never felt the need because I tend to always jump into action. And uh, it may be that depression or being immobilized is far fr scarier to me. And so I overcompensate, I don't know, but it's not a behavior that's common to me. So yeah. I love that part of you. When you retired, there was a wonderful dinner that was given for you. You wore this stunning green <laughs> chiffon <laughs> dress. Oh, you looked beautiful. You always look beautiful. You look stunning that night. And um, I think Sid, your husband, whom we will get to, I think he told a story. He said, you know, Karen was always busy. He goes, I remember we, we used to go up to our cottage and I'd wake up in the morning and there she was sitting with committee members from one of the projects you were working on. Something like that, no? Yeah, I always loved sharing uh, our country life with colleagues and uh, would invite them up to the cottage and uh, we would hold meetings and retreats and stuff. And I remember Sydney coming up once, and we were all <laughs> floating on the lake. <laughs> Everybody, there were, every room in the place was taken up, and he just sort of rolled his eyes to heaven. But uh, he rolls he, with your stuff, though. He doesn't is he? amazing. We are uh, very, very different kind of people. Yeah. And uh, in fact, uh, at one of our anniversaries, he made a speech about the miracle of incompatibilities, <laughs> which is how people describe us. But he he gives me a tremendous amount of space, and he's. Uh, very much a supporter and a fan, and uh, and uh, we have a lovely life together. I was very lucky after I was widowed um, 
to have met him and three and a half years later to have married him. So it's kind of interesting because Sid is a very cerebral fellow. Oh, you could say that, yeah. He's mm-hmm. a scholar of Talmud, mm-hmm. right? He goes to shul often. He likes like, shul. Yes, and he loves sort of the classical things in Judaism and in life. You're a little bit different. You're oh, into non. F- you're into fiction books, yeah. right? I love fiction. I you like love memoirs. Fiction. I like memoirs. Yes. Um, he goes. Uh, I, I, he goes to many, many lectures very often, uh, about from Jewish scholars, um, and his his he's very much a civil libertarian and uh, um, just loves to learn and very analytic, um, very thoughtful. Um, very different than I, who <laughs> very spontaneous, always moving fast, a uh, hundred miles an hour in neutral <laughs> today <laughs> is what it feels like. Um, and uh, we've had a good life together, and we had a child together, and uh, he adopted both of my children. Which is special, and isn't it's, it? He's he's wonderful. He's a, he's got his own idiosyncrasy. He's very idiosyncratic. He uh, uh, he's a very special guy. He's a very well. Special what's guy. one of Sydney's uh, idiosyncratic? Uh, Oh my God! Traits. He's got a lot of obsessive <laughs> <laughs> traits, and everything has to be in a certain order in a certain way. Yeah. And he's um, it, it. He doesn't adapt easily, but when but he does adapt. Right. And um, yeah, so his um, he doesn't like change, and uh, so it's it's really hard for him uh, in a busy household with a crazy wife. Yes. Um, but he does adapt, and he. Um, so will you have intellectual discussions with Sid? Yeah, but I would imagine not at the level that he could have with colleagues who have similar interests. I mean, Sidney is a philosopher. He's a philosopher. Um, he is uh, very knowledgeable about Jewish studies. And like you said, he, he studies Talmud every week. And he um, has a passion for Israel. So when we talk, I would think that the depth of the discussion would not be what he could have with other colleagues with similar yeah. uh, interests and backgrounds. But we certainly are very supportive of each other. I'm much more um, left-leaning than Sid. Um, we're both not that far off from the center, but we have very different perspectives about, uh, about Israel, about Palestine about some of the humanitarian issues, uh, about politics. But we respect each other's views, and he will support me as I do various activities or work on boards or do fundraisers for causes that may not have been his choice. But um, he's comfortable with who I am and what I do. So um, in that way, we, we r- it really works really, really well. I was always the, under the impression the things that are strongest inside of you should be the things that you look for in a mate or a potential mate. Mm-hmm. I'm 58. I'm not married. Okay. That may answer a few questions um, as to why I'm not. I'm not sure I look for the right things. Because I always thought, Karen, that if Sid was like that, that he would need you also yeah. to be part of an intellectual, sophisticated and, and, conversation and, and, like that. And Sydney didn't get married till he was thirty-five, and honestly, in those days, that was a that was a confirmed bachelor. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, I think that he may have been looking for this utopian uh, partner, um, but I do think that we sought 
common values and what I want, I needed a very, very intelligent husband. Uh, the men in my life have always been extraordinary. I don't know why. Yeah. I often think it's because I don't think I'm that smart, so I compensate. But uh, both of my husbands were, you know, top of the class, silver medalists, uh, brilliant, brilliant people. And I've always been attracted to very brilliant men, special men. Yeah, thank uh, you. Karen <laughs> just pointed and, uh, at me. And I'm, I'm deeply touched. And and um, but we had a lot in common. We came from very similar Jewish backgrounds. Um, uh, our, the, our family homes were similar. We both had a, a high value for education. We were both sociable. We both uh, loved our friends and uh, loved to learn. Um, I think we had a lot in common, and I I think we still do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although some of our politics are a bit different, um, our values are, are really quite aligned. And I was looking, I often tease him, I was looking for a wonderful father for my children. And he, he was that man. He is. Yeah. Well, yeah. What, 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 what makes him a wonderful father? Well, he's very devoted and he's, um, he's very consistent in his love and his, his honesty and his integrity and his values are omnipresent. Uh, uh, he's a tremendously devoted guy. He thinks his wife and his kids are the best. Does you know? he? Yeah. That's yeah. nice. So, um, we, you know, we, we were very lucky to find each other, really. Do you hold hands? Oh, lots of times. You <laughs> do hold hands? Oh, yeah. We're, we're quite... After all these years. Yeah. There's lots of uh, physical connection and, uh, and love. And, uh, I, you know, I, I watch families go through trouble and splitting up and... Uh, I watch people getting older, and it's interesting to me sometimes when you look at some of your friends and people who've gone through some hard times in their marriages, yeah, yeah. but are lucky as they get older that those things don't matter so much, and so they now, grow, now grow closer. They so grow closer. So you're empty nesters now. You never look yeah. around the house and go, oh, me, it's me and Sid, damn. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, we just had our kids live with us for eight months, our older son and his right. family, and I loved it, and it drove Sid crazy. Did it? 30 pair of shoes in the front hall, yeah. a dog that really looked like a horse because um, his sense of order is different, uh, and his tolerance for the, that kind of stuff is different. But I love having the kids around. I, I, uh, I'm struggling right now as I... Uh, failed retirement and have tried different things and then at a stage where I think I'm not going to work <laughs> anymore. I, I retired from making a living. But trying to find meaningful enough activity and structure, um, it's still hard for me at this stage. And uh, having quiet weeks um, isn't all, it's sometimes a bit unnerving for me to say, what am I going to do of value today? What's really yeah, I don't I think you're really good that? at retirement. I don't think I you're really know, good at it. I but so like I say, I retired from making a living, and hopefully, but y- you do become, you don't become obsolete, but the time is for the younger generation, I believe, and so if I can help mentor, if I can help support others to achieve their goals and, and be successful, I think that's what my role is now. Well, look, you're, you're now the chairperson of an organization that helps the Yazidi people, mm-hmm. the Aboriginal pe- people of Iraq, right? That's right? And I spoke to the executive director, and for all intents and purposes, Thank yeah, I just wrote an article. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Uh, you know, she said you're acting as the chairperson. So what I don't get is w- what's so different now about your, your uh, chairpersonship than it would have been five, ten years ago. I think uh, I think the difference is that when I was um, engaged in a demanding job, 
I always fit in my extra work, and it always gave me more than I gave it, but it was fitting in. But now that work, that community work, is the essence of what I do besides picking up my little grandchildren and trying to be available for my kids. A real bubble, eh? But it's, um, it, uh, it feels different. It feels different, and I'm very aware of some of the technical skills that people have today on social media and different kinds of things that I don't have, and I don't want to have them. <laughs> you don't, you don't. No, I'm not, I'm not prepared to. It's not what I think I do well. I think I can do other things. So I feel that I've reached a stage where you started off and you talked about wisdom, and if I thought I was wise, I think if I have something to offer, it's the learnings from my experience and uh, my commitment to Shalom Babayit and finding positive solutions to challenging issues um, is really part of my modus operandi, and I think that I can bring that. Um, but um, it's it's now not fitting around my other busy life. It's in many ways, aside from my kids and grandkids, the most important thing I can do. Are you looking life. forward to the future? Very much, um, but I have some trepidation because I feel a restlessness when I'm not busy. That's my shtick. Can you get busy? I do. I get busy, but it feels different to me. And I always said, and I said this to you many times, that I want balance in my life. Ach <laughs> well, vey. Yeah, but balance, I, I don't seem to seek that kind of balance, or I'm not comfortable with it. I'm trying to be comfortable with it. That's my late later year learning, is to become comfortable with downtime and uh, relaxing. I'm a avid reader um, but I'm still not there yet in terms of feeling stabilized in like the rhythm of my life do you feel as though you still have a lot to give in terms of repairing in the world or is it more repairing yourself repairing your your grandchildren no, no I think I still have something to give um, in terms of um, repairing in, in terms of repairing the world uh, and making the world a better place whether it's helping people one by one or whether it's around mi bigger issues. Uh, one of the things I'm involved in today is something called Project Rosanna, yes. which is a, a beautiful charity started in Australia uh, to try to build bridges through health between Palestinians and Israelis. Nice. So many of my colleagues would say, we got enough tsuris in our own community. Uh, you know, what are you doing with you know worrying about Palestinians? Well, I worry a great deal, and I feel that we need that bridge to live compatibly, uh, and it's worth the effort, even though sometimes it's an uphill struggle. Uh, listen, I also tell people, um, as far as Via Hafta goes, it's an organization, really. It's, it's Canada's only Jewish humanitarian organization in the way that it does things. That the truth of the matter is we are working with other peoples, but everything we do strengthens the Jewish people. Right? We have that very same value. And if we can demonstrate that we care for everyone and not just for ourselves, I think that's an important contribution to the Jewish ethic and the Jewish world. So that's where I think I can make my contribution. I'm not a scholar. Um, and we model the behavior that we'd like to see. And we care about everyone. I do. This this show it's called Hat Radio is w as I said many times already it's weighted towards positivity, 
kindness. You and I have had many discussions about kindness, and I think you told me that there are two different types of people in the world, or perhaps this is what I gleaned from something else you had said. There are those people who roll up their sleeves and they go out there and they will help a family who are in need, not, not, not by phoning them simply and saying, hi, how you're doing, but going and finding them furniture by getting them a school, the little guy's school to go. And there are those people who say, well, you know what, maybe you can do it or maybe somebody else can do it. I've seen a lot of that. I grew up in a home where my parents, God bless their souls, put themselves out for other, rolled their sleeves up. They got their fingernails dirty. And so did you, right? Yeah. Do you think we'd live in a kind world, in a kind community, in a kind country? I, I worry that today we're so overtaken with the challenges, political challenges, and the concerns for ourselves that uh, uh, the generation that, that follow me are uh, have grown up in, in good times and have a sense of entitlement. Um, I think it's tougher uh, for them in many ways. The opportunities aren't the same as they were when I grew up. Um, but um, I, I, I think that I think that we step back from caring for others always, and, and uh, too many of the people that I know are thinking about themselves first uh, and don't seem to have the capacity beyond that. I think one really has to, I know with my own kids who are wonderful, I really have to work at encouraging them in their busy lives and their wonderful parents to give in other ways. And if you have money just writing a check that's nice we that's all love nice. those big checks yes. but it ain't enough it ain't enough not for me anyway well, why i was so attracted to you is well aside from the fact that i'm tall blonde and svelte yes yeah. you are yeah. is because of that my, my as i said that's in my dna that's how i grew up that's how i was raised and i found it i find it extraordinarily important in life that is to give of what you have to others. Now, you've told me stories about individuals in your family who you literally took into your home for a long period of time because it wasn't quite working out in the, like in their home. And that's a big deal, Karen. That's a big deal. Always room for one more, always room for more. Do you feel like that's a big deal or is that just the way it is? No, I don't think it's a big deal. And you know, again, looking back at how my father grew up in the home of other people, you know, after school and came home late at night, yeah. slept in his own bed. Yeah. The, this is, we're there to, to help each other. And I think I always get it back in spades. I, I never feel that I give more than I get. Even my volunteering and my experiences in the community, I've always learned more. It's broadened the depth and breadth of my understanding of society and what makes a civilized society. Um, no, I've always felt privileged to be able to open my my home and my heart to other people, to family and friends, and uh, sometimes it's challenging, as you know. <laughs> but you're uh, prepared to pull your hair out. You're prepared to go through the tsuris, as we say in Yiddish, the problems with, let's say, a niece or a nephew that sure. you would with your own children. Yeah, yeah, I've had that. I have uh, my young sister, when she died, uh, her daughter, uh, she had a, a a very challenging daughter, uh, who was deeply challenged by a very sick mother from the day she was brought into their home. Um, and she felt like the right place for her to be was in our home. And yeah. again, my marvelous husband, 
accepted that and it changed the dynamic. I mean, we were at that time, my youngest son was at university and there we were with a 10 year old who was very troubled and very angry and sad. Um, and we tried to make a difference in her life and I, I hope we did. Um, but that's, I don't even think about that. That's just part of who we are. Yeah. So, so, so when you hear of a family in need, there's a specific family that you helped out and I won't go into details. Someone brings you, let's say, this case, this story, this situation. What's the first thought you have in your head? I, really, it's how can I help them? Is there something I can do to improve the situation? Very often people would come to me, I think, because of my work at JVS in terms of jobs and helping the Jewish with vocational careers. Services. Yeah, Jewish vocational services um, to help somebody with a job. So one of the family that you're making reference to, because for those of you that don't know, Avram and I have been friends for many years and have shared our experiences and our lives over the years, probably in some ways with more intimacy than others because of our some of our common values. Yes. Uh, and um, so this was an instance where a family with a child with a dreadful mm -hmm. skin condition, um, they were here, uh, they weren't legal, they were here as visitors, but they had to work to make have some money to live and this was a better place. So they came to me for a job, to help them with a job. Someone referred them, well, I didn't know they were illegal, <laughs> that they couldn't work, etc. but damn it, I was gonna help them because yeah. they needed to fe feed their family. And so we started, uh, a relationship developed around that and uh, I became very connected and care about them deeply. And uh, so it's been almost five years now. Have your kids suffered at all because of your sacrifice for others? Um, that's interesting. I think you'd have to ask them. Uh, my daughter would say that I wasn't always present when she was growing up. And yeah. uh, when she said that to me, which is recently, by the way, um, I, I mean, I, I think I've known that. She felt that, but she actually stated it unequivocally that she felt abandoned. I, I, uh, I, was, I was taken aback by it that, that, was that she had that depth of feeling. And she rationalized it, that I was making a living and that I felt a need to support the family. I mean, she tried to justify me, but the truth of the matter is I think I did get caught up in, in, the, uh, in my passion to make a difference for others and perhaps at times was n negligent and if I was doing it again, I might have spent more time at home. I mean, I, I could rationalize, I had this wonderful housekeeper, I had these parents that were around and sisters that came by. I mean, my kids had such rich experiences, but nonetheless, my daughter said she felt abandoned, yeah. But isn't there a natural drive within a woman or a man to move towards their own children first? I guess, and I, I think I had always thought that would be my way, but when I needed to make a living uh, and support my kids, yeah. um, and I think too, my absolute passion for my work See, I think you probably felt that as well. Um, I loved what I did. I loved what we were creating. You I sure uh, did. Felt we made a difference in the way healthcare services were delivered in this in this country, and in some areas, the programs caught on in other parts of the world. Um, so I really was. I felt that my efforts were, and the efforts of my friends. It was always a team effort. Uh, my colleagues paid off. They made a difference. And I guess I, I felt that my kids did all right with all of the love that surrounded them. But the truth of the matter is I probably was not as present as I might have been 
and if I did it again, I'd, I'd have more time at home. You, you don't have much of an ego, do you? I don't think so. You know, you really don't. I, don't I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> well, no, it I, depends. I, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> you really don't. Like when I've asked you over the years, your greatest successes, how you feel about saving these lives and bettering these lives, it's all sort of in the course of things with you. You know, that's that's who I am. Well, that's what I'm supposed to do. I think even when you've been honored, and I've seen you to honor, you're a little bit shy up there. Yeah. I think it's 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 never about what I do by myself. It's about what I with other people do. And I I guess sometimes I have been in a leadership position with those people, maybe a little more outspoken and a little more comfortable. But um, it's never about me. It's about what collectively we can do. And I've been just so lucky to be in that in that situation. So I I've grown up for 75 years yes. in a pretty special place and time. At 74, close to 75, mm -hmm. what would be one of your greatest successes, would you say? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Aside from raising wonderful children, yes. um, probably the creation of a, a home visiting rehabilitation program that recognized the importance of, of uh, working with people in their own environments, in their homes, in their workplace, so they could function at a high level, and uh, including people with mental health challenges because originally in the 70s the, the certainly the Ontario government thought that mental health was not uh, you weren't eligible for services at home that was wrong and we demonstrated that so we had lots of chutzpah and lots of uh, very proud moments in helping to change the landscape so not only seniors you're speaking of no no we're talking we had pediatric programs as well as geriatric programs mental health programs did you go into the homes programs. yourself Oh, I did very much, and in fact, when I uh, no longer could do clinical work in, in homes um, because I had to go to a meeting, I said, this is the, the wrong thing, you can't be in both places. But every once in a while, I would go back in the field because people said, uh, don't just make decisions in the corner office, what do you really know? Get yeah. out there, yeah. fill out those forms and yeah. see what's happening, and I would. And I missed that clinical side, I missed it very much. Much like we encourage people at Bahafta to go out on the van and to go to you know, teach a, a session at VSA, touch and feel. How were your four or five years at Via Hafta? I, uh, I loved the Hafta, as you might recall. For the first three years, I was a, a bit of a consultant, and yeah. I worked with you and your senior team to sort of uh, polish the organization with the goal of growing it, and we did, and uh, becoming more professional. Uh, and then during that period where I was the interim acting director, uh, we continued to... Uh, to uh, make a difference and to grow programs, uh, uh, all of us, all of us, we put together a good team, and uh, I, I, I loved it. And uh, I was part-time, so that was something I was giving myself more time to have some of that other balance. And I miss that. I've done that a few times since I retired, but the most meaningful one was the Hafta. Uh, I have to sure. tell you, I feel so <laughs> lucky uh, ha having met you and I did based on the fact that you were the executive director at JVS, the Jewish Vocational Services, and it kind of did what it sounds like. And I came in there, I had a problem with a staff member, and you walked me through it. And then and then you did what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, you've always said, Avram, you really don't learn much from me, do you? But uh, but but we became friends. And then I said, I figured, listen, I'm going to court this person because you were on your way out of JVS 
and I did. And we used mm-hmm. to have these wonderful lunches at United, and and I kept pushing you and pushing you, and eventually you said, okay, well I'll come. I'm about to retire, and I'll come work with you guys. And I have to attribute to you, like really to a large extent, the success of the organization, certainly in the last number of years, because I can't do what you do. I just, I don't have the wherewithal to do it. I don't know why, but I'm not the administrative type at all, and you're brilliant at it. And uh, I remember once you said to me, you go off from, I thought I would share with you and teach you everything I know, but you just didn't want to learn. <laughs> and and that, was, that. that was true. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it was important that we each recognize that. Yes, I'd like is. to think I have some vision, but you are truly a visionary. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank and you. I, um, I build great teams is what I've been lucky you to do. You do, you do. And uh, working through those teams and creating the processes just has uh, enabled some success in growing businesses. You always came and said, how did you grow JBS? You want to know, how yeah. did you come and help me grow the Hufta? And uh, we did do that together. We so did, we did. You, you've always inspired me. Uh, just this morning, I was reading one of your articles in the Canadian Jewish News and thinking, I could never do that. Yeah, I could thanks. never write that. Uh, it's It's just, it's so inspiring and it's so right on in terms of the values that I think are so important. So what are you reading nowadays? <laughs> I'm reading a very difficult book called Five Days at Memorial, and it's the story of Hurricane Katrina uh. and um, the events that happened at the hospital when it was flooded and there was no, uh, and uh, there was euthanasia, or the question of whether it was a homicide, homicides or not, and the cases about the whole medical system being put on trial and what this woman did. It's a very weighty, weighty book, uh, really challenges medical ethics and uh, and a very compelling read. Uh, but an, uh, I just finished a book called Home Fire, which was a, uh, an amazing, amazing story. Uh, and uh, I love to read, so that's- How do you choose your books? I, I choose it because I belong to a number of book clubs and very, very wise and smart literary people recommend books and then review them. But I, I read hundreds and hundreds of books a year. Do you? So, yeah, I do. I'm a fast reader. And um, more, I w- do. I read books much more than I would watch TV. You know, so just right, just my right, joy. right. So have so you ever heard of, uh, oh, man, I, I can't even remember. There's all these series on TVs now that people are watching. Do you watch series on TV? Uh, Sydney likes, <laughs> he likes to watch some series so once in a while. Like I'll which one? Wh- what's he watching? Oh, my God, what's it called? Something. Oh, it's an old one. It's an old one. Uh, Mad Men. He oh, likes okay. Mad Men. Oh, Mad my Man, God. Yeah. That makes me crazy. It does? <laughs> well, why does it make you <laughs> because crazy? Because it's just not a real world. Oh, it may okay. have been a real okay. world in a particular okay. time. And the characters, to okay. me, are so plastic. But anyway, he's very discerning, and he likes <laughs> that show. <laughs> so if I want to watch TV with him, I watch <laughs> a part of that series. How do, you, how do you want your children to remember you? I, I think I'd, I'd like them to remember me as a, as a good mom as a good mom who made a difference and um, who spent her time well. Yeah. How do you want the community to remember you? Yeah, that I tried to make the world a better place. Of which you did, always. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to touch on? No, I just <laughs> thank you for the opportunity for sure. to come and sit with you. I, I enjoy that, whether it's our pea soup at United or yeah. an opportunity to sit like today or to problem solve. I do too. And uh, I, do too. I wish you great luck with your 
new endeavor thank and you. all of your endeavors. So thank okay. you. Did you ever try to play an instrument, by the way? I am so unmusical. But did you ever try to play an instrument? Oh, I played piano for 15 minutes. With <laughs> for 15 minutes. Well, maybe longer. But yeah. I have, uh, my kids are quite musical, especially my youngest. And right, uh, right. I know you enjoy it a lot. Very much. Yeah. So Anyways, thank you. thank you. Thank you for being part of our second episode here. You are a very positive person. Thank you. And I uh, try to take as much out of that as possible um, to hang around with you, to be with you, to listen to you, and to share with you. So to do this interview, um, I'm just ab absolutely delighted to have thank shared you. this with and you. Thank you. You were great. Thank you for the gift of your friendship. Oh, thank you. Uh, you've, you've done great in life, and you should be well till 120. Thank and to, to our listeners, uh, you've been listening to Hat Radio. Um, we're really excited that uh, we've launched the show and essentially we're going to try uh, to be as positive as possible about life we want you to listen to the stories of our interviewees and perhaps to relate to them and say to yourself at the end of it you know what yes that's me too and i feel a little bit uh less alone in life because i'm not the only one who's experiencing this so I'm not quite sure who our next guest is, but I'm, I'm sure they'll be wonderful. And I look forward to doing this again. So thank you and God bless.